Welcome to the Salt Church Podcast. We're a church that meets in the heart of Wollongong. Come and visit us on Sundays, 10am and 5pm at 275 Kira Street. We'd love to meet you. G'day everyone again. Let's, uh, let's pray as we come and hear God's voice from Acts chapter 10. Let's pray. Our great Heavenly Father, we're so prone to distraction. Um, help us now to focus, help us now to listen and tune in to what you have to say to us from Acts chapter 10. Lord, we, might, we pray that we might see your greatness, your glory, we might see how great Jesus is and what he's done for us again and what he's done for the world. Uh, Father, of all the voices that we hear uh, throughout the week, we pray now we might tune into the, the voice that really matters, your voice. Help me to speak clearly and faithfully. Uh, Lord, help us to respond in a way that brings glory and honour to your name. Amen. I want to talk to you about three passions I've got. Uh, The first two will uh, reveal a little bit of what our holiday was like uh, over the last couple of weeks. So we went away for the last couple of weeks. It was, uh, I think, the first time since we've lived in Wollongong, we've actually gone away for two weeks, uh, like you all. We've been having a lot of those vacations at home, staycations, is that what they call them, um, because of COVID. Uh, but here's one of my passions, uh, camping. I uh, love the outdoors, love being uh, in the fresh air. There's something about the outdoors, the preferably near the beach, the, the smell of the ocean, swimming, surfing, fishing, the sand, uh, cooking in the outdoors. Campsites that are a little bit off the beaten track, don't have hot showers, don't have reception, don't have power, don't have tarred roads, I find work really well because there's less people. Um, so I love that kind of stuff. Our families love that kind of stuff. Another passion is the snow and skiing. I love, I love going skiing. Uh, it's not as affordable passion, um, but more affordable because Natalie hates it and she loves that I love it. So it works really well. Um, but it's really interesting over the years, people used to say, oh, I hope you enjoy it when you come back, did you have fun? Now they say, oh, don't injure yourself. Um, and when I come back, any injuries? So I don't know whether it's I'm getting older. Um, people now pray for me before I go skiing. Um, I've got a coach uh, that helps me in ministry, helps me be a better lead pastor. He actually specifically prayed that I wouldn't injure myself uh, down at the snow. There's someone in our small group, my small group, who prayed, Lord, please help Michael to realise his age. (laughs) And then someone expressed concern that I don't die on the snowfields this year because it's really hard to find a new lead pastor. So I'm feeling the love on lots of us. This is great. Um, But here's a more important passion. Here's Here's a passion of mine. Here's something that really grabs me. Here's something that really annoys me when it doesn't happen well. And that is a church that is welcoming to outsiders. A church that loves to welcome new people. Uh, Are you with me on on that passion? A church that's accessible to people who want to know more about Jesus, who don't yet know Jesus, who've never been to church, who've never discovered who Jesus is and how great he is, or a church that's welcoming to people who do know Jesus and need to find a church home. I love it when that's done well. It really bugs me when that doesn't 
get done well. But there's something in our passage tonight that tells me this is not just to be my personal passion. This is actually the passion, or should be the passion, of everyone who follows Jesus. This, this actually goes to the very heart of God, uh, so much so that there's something fundamentally wrong with us as a church if we're not welcoming outsiders. Uh, there's something in the DNA of a Jesus, Bible-believing, spirit-filled church that welcomes outsiders. Uh, not just the, re- the passion, the responsibility of some, but actually the passion of everyone who loves Jesus. Because I'm sure you've had the experience of being in an unwelcoming place. In fact, you may have even had the experience of being in an unwelcoming church. How bad is that? Tonight, I want, I want you to be captivated again by a church that welcomes the outsider. I want you to see how central it is to God's heart, his plans, his purposes. So have your Bibles open, Acts chapter 10. Uh, have your phones out, your, your Bibles open in front of you. Here we are in Acts chapter 10. Here's the historical account of a man named Cornelius. Uh, if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, you, you know we've restarted our Unstoppable Acts series, so Acts chapter uh, part 2, uh, chapters 9 onwards. And what is Acts? Acts is written by Luke, the doctor. He's writing an historical account. Here are real places, real people. Uh, this is what actually happened in the first century in the Mediterranean world. Here is the vital, a vital part in God's unfolding plans, the, the explosion of the good news of the gospel. Jesus has died for sins. Christ has risen. Now forgiveness is possible. We're seeing that rolled out for the very first time, set in history. And here we are in chapter, in chapter 10 in the book of Acts. Now I want to outline the events of chapter 10. You may be familiar with them, you may not. It's a little bit complex. It goes into chapter 11 as well. We're just focusing in chapter 10 mainly. And then point out seven things along the way, seven things that I want you to notice, and then hit the main point, and then finish with some implications for us as a church. So what's going on here in chapter 10? Uh, notice with me there's two main human characters here. Now God, of course, is always the main character uh, in the Bible and certainly here in Acts, but two human characters. The man Cornelius, don't you love that name? If you ever have a son, call him Cornelius. So many untapped names in the Bible, I, I find. Um, no, the call goes out. Uh, so Cornelius, the first man, and the second man is the Apostle Peter. Now, think about Cornelius with me for a moment. He's introduced in the first couple of verses. He's a centurion in the Italian regiment, so he's in charge of 100 men. Uh, what's he like? He's... It says he's God-fearing, so he's, he's not a Jew, but he's a Gentile. Gentile means of the nations. Uh, but it's almost like he's in a third category. He's a Gentile who fears God, who knows God is there, prays to God. Uh, he's taught his family to honour and pray, God, pray to God as well. Notice he gives generously to the poor. Uh, he's a God-fearing Gentile. The God-fearing Gentiles didn't have all the responsibilities and the privileges of Jews, far from it. Uh, but in around the temple, they gathered in the, the court, the outer court. Uh, they had 
They feared God, uh, the God of Israel. And what does it say? It's three o'clock in the afternoon and Cornelius has a vision. He sees a vision very clearly. He distinctly sees an angel of God in verse 3. We don't know whether, is this the wing kind or is this the burly bearded man kind? There's, there's two kinds, I think. Um, what does the angel say? Send some of your men down to the coastal town of Joppa, which is not far from where they are in Caesarea. So there's a map on the screen there. Caesarea, also a coastal town on the Mediterranean there, uh, to the north. Uh, send some men down to Joppa, to the south, another coastal town. There's about 40 kilometre distance between the two, roughly the distance between Wollongong and Jerengong. Go there and bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter. And Cornelius thinks, yep, I'm going to do it, I'm going to obey. And so his men head down to that, that coastal town of Joppa. And here's where you learn how God works out everything according to his plans and purposes to the details. That God is sovereign. Uh, who is down in Joppa? The Apostle Peter is down in Joppa. And what is he doing? He's praying, and he's praying on his roof. Uh, I'm not sure I recommend that to you. Um, there's probably safer places to pray. But he's a man who's committed to prayer, um, calling upon God, taking time uh, to pray to his Heavenly Father on the roof. It's all, we're also told he's hungry. He falls into a trance. I'm not sure whether is that why he falls into a trance. It's, there's some details left out. Uh, but he has a vision, and also related to perhaps being hungry, is the vision relates to food. Did you notice that? Um, so he sees heaven opened, um, a sheet come down, a large sheet come down from heaven. Uh, it's clearly from God, so he must have been thinking something good is coming, because I know every good gift comes from God. But what happens to his surprise, this is the image he sees. It's, it's really weird, isn't it? It's a sheet full of four-footed animals, reptiles, birds, all kinds of animals that Jews are not meant to eat, that are forbidden for Jews to eat. Then he hears the voice, he hears God say, kill them and eat them. Peter's head at this point is spinning. Uh, Surely not, he says. I have never eaten, verse 14, anything impure or unclean. And yet God rebukes him. God says, don't call anything impure that I have made clean. To get the message through, God does this three times. So Peter might hear it. And as Peter's making sense of it, what happens? Cornelius' men arrive from Caesarea, uh, men that Peter's actually not meant to associate with. They're Gentile men. Uh, it says they're stopped at the front gate, as they, as they would have been. Uh, and God has to actually convince Peter again, speak to Peter again. Now it's okay to associate with these men, welcome these men, listen to these men. And so these men explain to Peter, our boss had a vision uh, and told him, to send us to you so we might hear what you, the apostle, have to say. And so what happens, Peter invites them in. Uh, He's obviously persuaded by them that he needs to go up to Caesarea to speak to Cornelius and whoever else will be gathered there. And so that's what they do. They head up to to Cornelius' house uh, in Caesarea. And there in Cornelius' house, it's obviously a large house because he has a large gathering of people there, 
by that time, Peter has worked out what God is telling him. And Peter's ready to speak. And have a look at what Peter says in verse 28. He said to them, or flick back to 27, while talking with them, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, you are well aware that this, that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with or, or visit a Gentile. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. That is massive. That is huge. That Peter has realised Jew and Gentile are clean, are pure. And you can associate with Gentiles. They're acceptable to God. This is a massive breakthrough for the Apostle Peter that he's proclaiming to this group. Look down, it's even more explicit in verse 34. Then Peter began to speak. I now realise how true it is that God does not show favouritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. So what is the good news? The good news is that is now for Jew and Gentile, for both the nation chosen originally by God in the Old Testament, but also for every nation, for every Gentile. Uh, Mind-blowing for Peter. What Jew would have ever thought that we would have arrived here in our lifetime? And so what does Peter do for the rest of that chapter? He actually explains the gospel, the good news of Jesus. He actually says, peace with God comes through Jesus and is now available to all. He says, we're witnesses that Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus was full of the Spirit. He was anointed by God. He he did good works and healings. He says, we are witnesses that Jesus died on the cross. Uh, Jesus rose again from the dead. The resurrection is real. It is massively significant. Uh, Jesus appeared to witnesses and he gave us the message that everyone who trusts in Jesus will receive the forgiveness of sins. And that is as Peter is speaking, the spirit comes on those who receive the message. Uh, The Jews are completely astonished that non-Jews are receiving the spirit of God. Uh, They've clearly been baptised by the Spirit. They've clearly put their trust in the Lord Jesus. And then what does Peter do? He says, well, we've got to organise them to be baptised in water, a symbol that actually the real baptism of the Spirit has happened in their lives. And there is the groundbreaking moment, I think, or one of the groundbreaking moments in Acts, one of the groundbreaking moments in the unstoppable work of the Gospel as it hits non-Jews for the very first time. And you see the massive transformation in Peter, don't you? Wrestling with it, coming to the conclusion, this is what God is saying clearly. Let me tell you that good, the good news is for both Jew and Gentile. There's, there's angst even in chapter 11, but it ends in verse 18 with this summary. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God saying, so then even to Gentiles... God has granted repentance that leads to life. There's the events, groundbreaking events, big events, massive events in the unfolding plan of God. Let me, let me press into seven things along, uh, that we learn along the, that I want you to see along the way. Some briefly, some I'll, I'll press into a bit more. Firstly, did you, know the, did you notice the place of prayer? Uh, You can easily miss that, but it's significant, isn't it? 
Here is God working out his massive plans in, in salvation, the groundbreaking historical moments. He is clearly sovereign over all the details. And two men, two humble men are praying. Uh, those two things aren't incompatible. God can be sovereign over all the details and he's calling us to devote ourselves to prayer, to ask him to work, to act. Uh, God is working out his plans and purposes through us, even through our prayers. Secondly, did you notice a lot of visions going on here? Does that strike you as weird? Uh, I don't know how many visions you've had lately, but here God uses visions to speak to people. Uh, it's one of those things where God can use anything and does use anything to get people's attention, to speak to them. And it's pretty clear throughout the Bible and up to at least up to Acts, God has a habit of doing this, of getting people's attention through all different means, speaking through different means. And it always raises the question in Acts, doesn't it? Is that what I'm to expect today? I'm sure you might have wrestled with this in small groups. I reckon, um, so yeah, am I meant to see visions today? Is that God speaking to me? What am I to make of dreams? Is that the same thing? Hebrews chapter 1 is really helpful. Hebrews chapter 1 says, verse 1, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. That's how God spoke. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by how? His son. He's spoken to us by Jesus. There is the word, the one clear word, the fulfillment, the word who became flesh, Jesus. There is your answer. There is God speaking to you. Super clear. How do we access that one word in Jesus? Well, it's through the apostles that were sent by Jesus. The apostles who test this is the Jesus who actually lived, died and rose again. Here, are, here is the message of Jesus. It's, it's how we got the New Testament. Uh, how do we hear the voice of God? It's actually through the scripture, through the Bible. What is the one sure way to hear what God has to say? It's through the Bible. Uh, God can, of course, still use visions today. He can use anything he wants. But what is the sure way? What is the promised way? It's through the pages of the Bible. Thirdly, do you notice uh, lots of mention of the Spirit uh, and the work of the Spirit? Uh, now, there's, there's another area of uh, Christianity where there's lots of confusion. I think there's lots of nonsense spoken about the Spirit. Spirit's mentioned lots of times here, isn't it? And what do you notice about what the Spirit is doing? What is actually happening here that the Spirit keeps getting mentioned? You read through chapter 10 and hopefully you saw here is people realising who Jesus is. Here is people bowing the knee to the Lord of all, Jesus. Here is, the pe here is people receiving the forgiveness of sins, becoming new people. That's the very work of the Spirit. That's how God transforms people. That's how God makes disciples. That's how God builds his church, that's the work of the Spirit, right here in Acts. Fourthly, did you notice uh, God says to Peter, don't call anything impure 
that I have made clean. Now, I reckon this is a, a really helpful word for many of us to hear. We're probably more used to God saying, don't call something clean when I've called it unclean, yeah? So, so don't call something... Um, don't call evil good, is what we're probably more used to hearing. But here it's flipped around, isn't it? Don't call something good evil. Don't call something that God has made pure impure, is what is said. And so there's, there's some implications here, isn't there? All food is clean. Uh, the creation is good. It's made by God. It's for us and made for our good. There's nothing in creation that's evil in of itself. It might, it will be abused because we're sinful, but it's not evil in of itself. It's good. It's God's good gift. So all food is God's good gift to be enjoyed. All food. Uh, chocolate is not sinful. Yeah. No one needs to hear that today. Yeah. You just need to eat it in moderation. But it's God's good gift. Wine is God's good gift. There's one you need to hear about the moderation, the dangers, the abuse, isn't it? But it's not evil in of itself. It's God's good gift to us because it's part of his creation. Sex is God's good gift to us. Work is God's good gift to us. Rest is God's good gift to us. You shouldn't feel guilty about resting. That's part of God's good gift built into creation. A whole lot of other things too. Fifthly, did you notice the, the reactions around the Apostle Peter, the, the angst around the Apostle Peter? Uh, there's two of them. There's one where Cornelius responds to him and then there's one where, God, where he responds to God. But notice the one in verse 25, Cornelius. Verse 25, Peter comes to Cornelius' house. What happens? Cornelius falls at Peter's feet in reverence. I think, it, I think we're going to learn something actually about Jesus at this point. It's subtle. But notice Peter doesn't let that go when Cornelius does that. He picks him up on it. He's, it's like, Cornelius, what do you think you are doing? Stand up, get up on your feet. I am just a man. I am not God. That's inappropriate. Really interesting, isn't it? Jesus never does that. Uh, when people fall at the feet of Jesus, he lets them fall at his feet. He thinks that's appropriate because he's the Lord. He's God who's turned up in the flesh. But notice, sixthly, Peter, Peter's response to God. Peter says no to God. Did you notice that? Verse 13, I think Luke's really drawing our attention to this. This should stand out to you. Here's the Apostle Peter. God says to Peter, get up, kill and eat. And what does Peter say? Surely not, Lord. I cannot do this. No. Once again, God has spoken to him. Do this. It's very clear. It is clean. Peter says, no. No way. I cannot do this. I don't know how that goes down um, when you're growing up in your family, but in our family, when someone says that to a parent, it doesn't go down so well. 
What about when you say it to the Lord Jesus, the Lord of all the universe? That is actually quite staggering, isn't it? Here is Peter saying, you are the Lord of all, the king, but no, I'm not doing it. It's actually not the first time that Peter's done it. You might remember back in uh, Matthew chapter 16, before Jesus' death and resurrection. Remember Peter says, uh, so Jesus asks him, who, who do people say I am? Who do you say I am? Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Lord, the King of all. I acknowledge your rule. Jesus says, well done. God's actually revealed that to you. You've got it right. And then Jesus says, I must now suffer and die at the cross. And what does Peter say? Five verses later, surely not, Lord. It cannot be. No. Extraordinary, isn't it? That Peter can say to Jesus, you are the Lord, but I'm going to let you know this is a better way of doing it. Here is the Lord who runs the world, who's saving the world. And Peter says, no, there's a better way to do it. Who says no to Jesus? Peter does, doesn't he? Here in Acts chapter 10, it's very clear. And you've kind of got to ask yourself, how does Peter get to that point? How does he get to that point where he's the apostle Uh, He's heard from Jesus, he's been taught by Jesus, he's seen the risen Jesus. God has clearly spoken to him and yet he says, no, I'm not doing it. I reckon you've got to understand something about Peter. On one level, he's got no excuse. He's seen the resurrected Jesus. He's actually had the, the, the groundbreaking moment, Jesus is the fulfilment of all the Old Testament, all of God's plans are fulfilled in Jesus. Here is a, a new uh, covenant in Jesus, uh, a, a church that is built on him. Uh, Jesus even taught him some of the implications of that, how things will be different. Uh, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, all foods are now clean. I've fulfilled the Old Testament law. Uh, It's picked up in 1 Timothy 4. Everything God created is good. Nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. It's clear, Christians, you can eat meat, you can can drink alcohol, you can have chocolate, you can smoke tobacco or vape. It's not not that healthy (laughs) and it's expensive. But it's clean, it's part of God's good creation. God's clearly spoken... Peter still refuses. It says a lot about the power of culture, doesn't it? Peter has been steeped in Old Testament law. He's, clearly his head is still back in the Old Testament. He's still grappling with what does it mean for Jesus to be Lord and, and fulfill all things. So profound is the Jewish culture that he, he's wrestling with it and he kind of he needs to hear Jesus' Lord and rehear Jesus' Lord and rehear it again and again and wrestle with it and let it sink in and, and then hear it again. I reckon that's actually the journey that maybe one, some of you are on that journey where you're, you're discovering, is Jesus actually who he says he is? Is he the Lord of all? I don't know whether you remember, if you're a follower of Jesus, you remember that journey. But it's no surprise that if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you find it so hard and so difficult and you say, no, Lord. Because it is a massive transformation, isn't it? All your life you've heard, 
Actually, your life is your own. There is no eternity. It's okay to take or leave God. It doesn't really matter. Our culture keeps telling us that this world is all there is, that there is nothing else. It's okay to live for this world and live for yourself. And then you hear, Jesus is Lord of all. There is an eternity and there is a problem. You haven't always lived to please the Lord of eternity. And yet Jesus is willing to forgive you because he did everything at the cross to, to, to pay for your sins that you might be forgiven. If you turn to him, recognise him as Lord, say sorry, plead him for forgiveness... You hear all that and that is mind-blowing, isn't it? That is so difficult to comprehend. It's, it's actually offensive. And you say, surely not, Lord. It cannot be this way. And you need to hear it and you need to hear it and rehear it and wrestle with it and rehear it and think it through and ask the question and take more time and then hear it again. A friend of mine reckons it took him, it took seven times to hear who Jesus is and what he'd done and what that means for me to respond. Clearly, over time, seven times. I get it. I want to trust Jesus. Um, You might have heard after Salt Fest in October this year, we're going to start a course called the Life Course. And it's, it's going to be, this might be the very thing that Uh, would be really helpful to you it's going to be a course to help you understand who who is Jesus what does it mean to follow him is he real is he true is it historical Uh, an opportunity to ask questions Uh, so maybe that's the question maybe that's the course for you or maybe that's the course where you go I know exactly the person that needs to come along to that Um, so we're gonna that'll that'll happen in October Uh, But here's the thing, we're doing it over five weeks because it just takes time. It takes more than five weeks. But here's the start of the journey for you or or for a friend to to wrestle with this kind of earth-shattering news that Jesus is Lord of all, that forgiveness is possible, uh, and working out how you're going to respond. But you know, I think it's not just if you're investigating Christianity, not Christianity, not just a follow, not yet a follower of Jesus. It's also if you are a follower of Jesus, we bring a whole lot of culture with us, uh, even popular Christian culture, as we hear God speak to us from the Bible. I don't know whether you've noticed this. Uh, it's kind of quite dangerous, isn't it, to lean in on popular Christian thought as we come to the Bible, listen to what it has to say. We we take on this culture, um, Christian and non-Christian, and then we come to the Bible, we hear, and it can be quite a shock what God actually says. We react to it, we say, no, Lord, it can't be. Uh, as I was thinking about this talk this week, I was remembering a pastor that I used to know uh, in the Hunter Valley um, who was absolutely convinced that Christians should never talk about money. And he vowed that as a pastor, he would never raise the topic of money at church. He'd never speak about the topic of money uh, in his preaching. Somehow he'd picked up from his Christian culture through the years that this was true and right. 
And it actually didn't matter any conversation we had with him about actually Jesus says some things about money that are really significant. Uh, The apostles speak into this topic throughout the New Testament. He was so convinced, so resting on his popular Christian culture that he didn't want to listen to what God actually says in the Bible. I reckon the same thing happens when you read a part of the Bible and you go, before you've even delved into it, you know, I know what this says. I've read this before. You're actually in great danger at that point. You're just going to believe, learn what you've been what you've thought before, you'll never be challenged, never to, to dig deeper. A uh, guy that we had who came along to our church on the Central Coast, he, he admitted, I've come from a very different church culture. I've joined the small group. Uh, small group has really transformed me, has really changed me. And it's because small group seems to have a very different purpose. I used to come along to small group and think, I'm going to talk to people about what I think about God. And now I realise it's actually more about me listening to what God has to say to me as I read the Bible really carefully. And as I read the Bible really carefully with the help of my brothers and sisters. So I hear the voice of God from the Bible. Have you noticed uh, what happens to a Christian who drops out of Christian community? I don't know whether you might have been in this situation yourself. Uh, Firstly, it's really hard to be a Christian outside of Christian community community i think we don't do ourselves any favor when we miss small group and we we don't get along to gatherings on sunday but god's designed it that way hasn't he but what happens i reckon you you actually become quite an eccentric christian if i can say that you actually land in a place with a whole lot of strange beliefs and probably strange practices one because you're probably not hearing the word of god regularly that's really tough when you're on your own you need to be super disciplined if that's the only way you're hearing the word of God. But I reckon even bigger than that, you're not having anyone challenge you and help you wrestle with the, the Bible as you read it. And so no one is saying to you, actually, that's not what it says. Or actually, have you realized, perhaps because of your past experience, you're reading this very differently to the way God intends it to be read? Very helpful, isn't it, to be in community together, hearing the Bible taught. Now, maybe you're, you're sitting there going, okay, God has spoken in his word, but does that mean that when I come to the Bible, I kind of come to the Bible with a blank check, that I kind of sign my life over to everything the Bible says, that I just do what God says in the Bible? And I want to say, yes, that is what I'm saying. And that is perhaps a scary thing to think about. What if what it says I don't like? What if it's going to really cost me? It's going to really change me and shake me? That's a scary thought. Here's the thing I want you to remember. The God who wrote the Bible, wrote the scripture, who's speaking to us is a good God. He's the God who gave us his son, who said, will I not give you every good gift? I've given you my son. We need to trust this God, this good God, who has our best in mind because he is good and he's worth, it's worth us signing our life over to him. 
Last point I want to pick up with you before we hit the main point. Verse, look at verse 36, and I'll get your feedback on this. Yell it out to me. What do you notice about the gospel, the good news, in verse 36? It says, You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. What, do you, what does that tell you about the gospel, that, just that verse? What do you pick up? I'm deaf. Peace. Yes, it's about peace. Um, So peace with God. What a beautiful word that is. Uh, We can have peace with God in the gospel. Yep. Other things? Sent to the people of Israel. Israel. That's interesting, isn't it? We think it's to Gentiles, it's to all, which it is, but it actually originated back there it's 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 the gospel that's older uh, than the new testament other things i've got two more it's gonna be a late night (laughs) he's lord of all that's a massive one isn't it Last line, who is Lord of all. And it's also, I, I mentioned it actually when I mentioned verse 36, it's good news. Did you notice that? The gospel is good news. Um, so, so pick up on a couple of things there, um, what the gospel is. The gospel is two things. Jesus is Lord of all. He is the King, the Messiah. Um, he's calling us to submit to him. And he brings us peace, he brings us reconciliation, forgiveness is now possible. He's the saviour that we need to trust, that, that our sins can now be forgiven. And, and what a great comfort, lean into that comfort even tonight as you think about being cleansed, being forgiven. Here is great news, this is really, really good news. Doesn't matter about the sin, doesn't matter how, how deep you've dug yourself into, into sin, God can forgive you and will forgive you. He's come for us, for sinners, to bring us peace, to bring forgiveness of sins. Rest on that. Jesus is the saviour and the saviour of all. Now, none of that is the big big point of the passage. Let me give you what is the big point. God is unstoppable in bringing peace and reconciliation to every person in every every nation on the planet. God is unstoppable in bringing peace and reconciliation to the peoples of every nation on the planet. There is the heartbeat of God. There is what Acts chapter 10 is all about. There's the breakthrough moment. There's actually the plan that was there from the beginning. We heard it even in Isaiah tonight. Now in Jesus, it's actually happening. Now in Cornelius, he's actually received the Spirit. He's a new man. This beautiful news has come to Gentiles, to non-Jews. For the first time, Jew and Gentile are together in Jesus, in the one church. Uh, Someone in small group reminded me this week, here is the second Pentecost. It's a very clever way of putting it, isn't it? Here Here is the outpouring of God's Spirit for Gentiles. Beginning of Acts, it was for Jews. Here it is for Gentiles. Here is God demonstrating it like he did it in Pentecost in a very visible, very tangible uh, way. The good news of Jesus is for everyone, 
both Jew and Gentile. And that is, God wants the Jews to understand that. He wants us to understand that. It's written here for us in Acts. Here are some big implications for us as we finish tonight. Uh, What does it mean for us? The first thing I reckon it means is that Jesus is for you. If Jesus has come for all, for every, every person, every people group on, on the nation, that means he's come for you. And so if you haven't yet considered, you need to consider, here is the Lord, the Saviour, the one who's come to bring you forgiveness. Have you responded to him yet? But similarly, he's not just for you. He's for all. He's not just for your people group your age group. He's not just for Wollongong. He's not just for your ethnic group. Our nation is not the favourite nation. He's not uh, favouring us in any way. He shows no favouritism. He's come for every nation. He's come for the Malaysian, the Tongan, the Chilean, the Canadian, the Congolese. Jesus has come for every nation. And you've just got to keep thinking into this uh, and become that global Christian, that all-nation disciple, uh, disciple of Jesus. Think about heaven for a moment. Heaven is the, will be the most diverse multicultural group that you could possibly imagine. If Jesus were to return tonight, here is, um, hopefully, hopefully my maths is right, here's what the makeup of heaven would be. This is, this is a guesstimate. For every one Aussie in heaven, there'll be 26 Indians, there'll be 35 Kenyans, there'll be 60 Chinese. You are going to be completely outnumbered. <laughs> Massively diverse. And so, does that not mean you need to deal, I need to deal with my prejudices? There is no favourite nation. There is no lesser nation. There is no favourite race, people group, uh, skin colour. It says something about racism, doesn't it? That if the creation doesn't tell you loud and clear from Genesis that racism is evil, because every human being, every man and woman is made in the image of God across all the nations of the world that God has made, if that's not enough... Jesus screams it at you because Jesus is for every nation. Jesus died for all. The gospel is for all. And that has some massive implications for us as a church, doesn't it? How can that not make you a welcoming church? We won't have every nation here. Uh, There's not every nation in Wollongong and there's lots of churches in Wollongong. But how can it not make you welcome all? There is no other church, right? There's no, church that, there's no other church that pleases God that Jesus is the head of. The good news is for all people. And I reckon it also makes you a church always on mission as well. How can you, well, let me say this, you cannot be a follower of Jesus and not think mission, not think who else needs to hear of Jesus. This is everything that God's about. Now I might say you can be a follower of Jesus and not think mission and grieve the Spirit. 
Let me give you one last implication before we pray. What's the reason why God is for every nation? The reason that God is for every nation is that every nation, every person needs Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus to be saved. No one will be there on the last day without Jesus. That's not even popular amongst Christian popular thought, but that's what the apostles keep telling us, don't they? That's what this passage is about. That's why Cornelius needed Jesus. It's not like he was, wasn't a good guy. He was a very good guy. He had an awesome family. He loved, he feared God, loved God, gave generously, but he needed Jesus because everyone needs Jesus. It's what the, apostle, the apostles of Jesus keep, keep pressing us with, don't they? There is no other name by which you can be saved. It presses you back into mission again, doesn't it? It's, it's the Apostle Paul in Romans 10. How can they call on the one that they've never heard of? How can they believe in the one who they've never heard of? How can they call on the one they've never believed in? They need Jesus. Will you commit yourself to mission? Will you be a disciple of Jesus that recognises God's heartbeat is mission, is welcoming the outsider, is helping people come to love and serve his son. Let's pray to that end.